Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Got your Bibles? You ought to be in the habit by now of bringing your Bible. I've been hammering that pretty hard the last few weeks. And we're going to continue today, as I said, with our study of, I guess, what we would call the superiority of the Scriptures. I've been getting a lot of enthusiastic feedback on, this, on these messages, and that's exciting to me, not because, or at least not just because it's personally gratifying, but because it demonstrates that you have an appetite for the truth, even if it's not sometimes the most fun truth to hear. We talked, or started talking last week, about how many prophetic Voices seem to have burst onto the scene in the last few years, and that's good in the sense that Christians are becoming, in in certain circles, and and somewhat broadly speaking, more open to the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. That's a good thing. But it's also bad in the sense that people, even believers, tend to gravitate toward people who are prophetically saying what what they already believe or want to believe. So they gather to themselves prophets who are going to uh, uh, scratch their itching ears and speak things that all, all they do, it's, it's an echo chamber. We just look for confirmation of what we already think. And I just want us to be thankful that we are living in these times for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that we have the word of God written. So when it tells us to, tells us to test all things, we have the Bible to test these things against. We looked last week at the disturbing story of the old prophet and the man of God. You remember that? Jeroboam had become king of the northern kingdom, the new northern kingdom. And his concern was that if the people traveled back to Jerusalem to worship, as they were required to do by the law, that uh, they might have their hearts turned back toward reunification, as it were. And so to keep them from doing that, he had altars constructed in Bethel and Shechem, and he fashioned gold calves of all things to represent Jehovah. So these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And then came this, uh, this man of God to prophesy against these altars and against Jeroboam. And uh, he said, uh, the day's going to come when a little child shall lead them. His name's Josiah. And he's going to come, and he's going to... Uh, destroy this altar, and he's going to burn on it the bones of those who worship there. Now, what, I don't know if the, if, if the man of God knew how long it was going to be, but he, well, he wasn't saying this is going to happen today. In fact, it wasn't going to happen for 300 years, but then he says this, so you know what I'm saying is true, you're going to see this sign. This altar is going to split, and it did right there. It just sort of confirmed his prophetic word. You remember this? So here's a question we didn't ask. We didn't ask last week. I think we ought to think about it for a second. We read. I don't know if we read it in here. But I think we set it up this way. But if you go back and read it, you clearly see that God told Jeroboam that he was going to give him ten tribes. This wasn't Jeroboam's idea. He said, I'm going to split this country and you're going to get ten tribes, southern kingdom. David's house is going to keep two, keep one, that became, two that became one anyway. And he said he would establish a dynasty if Jeroboam 
would follow God's ways. He says, you still have to follow my law, you still have to seek me, but as long as you do that, you and your son and his son will sit on the throne of this new kingdom. Now, Jeroboam's concern about losing the kingdom if people worshipped in Jerusalem was a valid concern. So what was he supposed to do? He certainly wasn't supposed to do what he did, which was to build alternate places of worship, like the one in Bethel. God promised him this kingdom. He can see that if the people traveled to Jerusalem, he might lose the kingdom. What should he have done instead? How about this? Ask God. God had spoken to him. He knew God could speak to him. And he'd seen this much happen already. How about, wouldn't it be nice, if, since God said, hey, seek me, follow my ways, how about just go to God and say, hey, Lord, uh, thank you for this honor. Thank you for this privilege of being this king you've chosen to lead this portion of your people. But... He's, and, I, and I want to be king. Be honest before God. Don't try to hide your motives. I enjoy being king. I like this idea, but I want to be pleasing to you. Do I just continue letting the people travel to Jerusalem to worship, or do you have another idea? And let God make that decision, rather than violate the clear commands of Scripture. When we try to, when we, get, when we hear from God and say, God wants to do this, sometimes the worst thing we could do is look for ways to help God make that happen in our lives. Abraham did that on a couple of occasions, didn't he? We'll preach that sermon. I'll preach that sermon someday soon. I had one years ago called Five Ways Abraham Blew It. And I don't know, maybe there's one or two more, but we'll look at it. Uh, but not today. I want to look at a few other passages, if only briefly. In 1 Kings chapter 22, and I'm only going to summarize this, so I really encourage you to go read the passage later, maybe even later today. But you've got King Ahab of the northern kingdom, one of the worst, if not the worst, kings of the northern kingdom. And they were all bad. You didn't have any really good ones in the northern kingdom. But he has invited King Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom of Judah, and most of you have heard of Jehoshaphat. He was a good king. Uh, to join him in battle against the Syrians who were occupying Ramoth-Gilead. Ramoth-Gilead was a part of the territory that God had said belongs to Israel, and the Syrians had been occupying it for a while. And so he's deciding, hey, I'm going to go take this back. It's not a bad plan, even if it is Ahab. <clears throat> and Jehoshaphat had uh, married into the family of Ahab. He was, uh, he was a unifier at heart, a good-hearted guy who was just trying to smooth things over, and he thought it would help. So he entered into some questionable relationships. Uh, but, you know, again, his motives were good. But he invites Jehoshaphat to join him in battle against these Syrians. Uh, and Jehoshaphat says, I'm with you, and my people are your people. But he says, first, let's inquire of the Lord. Now, if I could go back in time and correct something, I would say, Jehoshaphat, inquire of the Lord before you commit yourself and your troops. But he makes the commitment, says, before we go, let's inquire of the Lord. Great idea. So he brings out 400 prophets, 400 of them to prophesy. Basically, let's, let's convince Jehoshaphat that it's going to be okay. So they all came out and they said, go, triumph. The Lord will surely deliver them into the king's hands. And, and, and Ahab's like, well. And Jehoshaphat, interestingly, is not impressed. 
He says, is there not one prophet of God that we can inquire of? Which sounds pretty insulting to 400 prophets who have just prophesied, right? You've got 400 prophets in agreement. But Ahab knows where he's going. He says, there is this one guy. His name's Micaiah. But I hate him. <laughs> because every time he prophesies, he prophesies evil about me. He never says anything good. And Jehoshaphat says, don't talk like that. Bring him out here. So somebody goes to fetch him. And this is one of the funniest scenes. I, I always point this out whenever I'm referring to this scripture. So forgive me if you've heard me laugh at it three or four times. But this prophet Zedekiah, apparently one of the louder voices of the 400 prophets, while somebody's going to fetch uh, Micaiah, and I don't know how far they had to go, uh, but he fashions these horns of iron and he uses them as a, as a prophetic illustration. And he starts running, Thus shall the king of Israel gore the Syrians at Ramoth Gilead. And everybody's like, Woohoo! Look at that. Just imagine that's, that's so cool. He's got these horns and he's just, Yeah, that's the way. That's what's going to happen to king and all of us. Uh, we're just going to tear through the Syrians at Ramoth Gilead. And they're just celebrating. And then somebody, the guy that goes to, to pick Micaiah up says, Look, everybody's excited. Everybody's on board with this. Just go out there and say what everybody else is saying. And everything will be cool. Don't harsh our buzz, right? Don't yuck our yum, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Just go along to get along. And uh, he says, I'm going to say what the Lord tells me to say. And the guy's probably thinking, oh, here we go again. So he does, but he goes out there. All right. Micaiah, should we go up against the Syrians at Ramoth Gilead? And he says, and you can just read, it's one of these passages of scripture where you can just read the, the sarcasm, you can just see it dripping off the page. He says, oh yes, surely you shall go and triumph and the Lord shall surely deliver it into the king's hand. Just word for word what these other guys were saying. And Ahab knows he's, he chastises him and warns him not to smart off and tell him what he really thinks. So then he prophesies truly, and he says, at the end of this battle, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be like sheep without a shepherd, meaning they're not going to have a leader, meaning they're not going to have a king, meaning the king is going to die. <laughs> and then Ahab looks at Jehoshaphat and says, see, what did I tell you? And then he says, but these heads out to battle anyway. So does Jehoshaphat. We'll talk about that sometime. But he says, to, to, for them to lock Micaiah up, says, lock him up and feed him bread and water till I get back. And Micaiah says, if you get back, I'm a monkey's uncle. Better read your Bible before you believe that. That's not what he said. If he says, come back, if you come back, then I've never heard from God. So they go out to battle. This is just a detail that we don't need to focus on today, but Ahab is so concerned about this that he says, and why, again, why Jehoshaphat agrees to this, I don't know. He says, I'm going to disguise myself as a normal soldier, but I want you to wear all of your kingly regalia. So who's going to be the target, right? But guess who dies in battle? Ahab. Jehoshaphat escapes. He survives. Two things about this quickly. I'll try to keep, do it quick before we move on. First of all, it's an example of exactly what we're talking about last week and a minute ago, which is if you want to be favored uh, and a followed prophet, then tell people what they want to hear. 
Now, there's some confusion about this passage because Micaiah said the reason these 400 prophets said what they said is that God put a lying spirit in their mouths. There's a lot to unpack there, but a short answer to that is that the spirit of God cannot lie. And he was simply allowing a demonic spirit to do what would ultimately serve God's purpose. Another one is that Micaiah was simply speaking this as an illustration, not sharing an actual vision or of an actual event. It's worth talking about, but I don't have time to do it this morning. If that's something that troubles you greatly, reach out to me. Send me an email, ask me a question. We can talk about it, and maybe we'll talk about it. I'll talk about it from up here sometime soon. The main thing is that somehow, this is what I want you to see, you've got 400 prophets, and somehow Jehoshaphat knew that they weren't speaking from the Spirit of God. He knew there had to be somebody else. There had to be a true prophet of God. And at least part of the answer to that is that Jehoshaphat was essentially a godly king. He held the word of the Lord in high regard. So God held Jehoshaphat in high regard. In fact, there's an interesting moment in 2 Kings chapter 3 where Ahab's son is also allied with Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat again asks for a prophet. So they're asking, is there a man of God here? Is there a prophet? And somebody comes and says, well, Elisha is here. He's, not, he's right, right nearby here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat says, good. The, spirit, the word of the Lord is with him. And when Elisha shows up, he's, he has nothing but disdain for Ahab's son. And Ahab kind of speaks sharply to him. And, and, and Elisha basically says, you need to shut up. I wouldn't even look at you if it weren't for the fact that I regard the king of Judah. Elisha had great respect for Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat recognized, again, as soon as Elisha's name was mentioned, that the word of the Lord was with him. I contend that Jehoshaphat had spent enough time in what was written at the time. Remember, they didn't have the whole Bible. But he did have the written word of God, and he was able to recognize the true word of God because of the time he spent with what he knew of the written word of God. Maybe not specific scriptures every time, but he had a level of discernment that allowed him to tell of what spirit it was. Is this the kind of thing the God I know from scripture would say at a time like this? Another question is this. If Jehoshaphat believed the prophecy of Micaiah, why did he go ahead into battle alongside Ahab? We already alluded to that. You know what the answer to that question is? I do, but it's a story for another time. I'm going to make sure you keep coming to church here because I know you want to hear that story. The main takeaway here is that Jehoshaphat had a heart for God. He knew his character and he knew his word well enough to be able to tell that 400 prophets were lying or at least deceived. These prophets may very well have believed uh, the garbage that they were spewing. Now, I want you to go back in time to when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Do you remember this story? Moses had fled into the wilderness after killing an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite. And while he's tending his father-in-law's sheep, he sees this bush burning, a bush rather that's on fire, but not burning, not being consumed by the fire. So he turns aside. He says, this is really odd. It wasn't that odd to see, you know, uh, fires out there in the dry desert. But it was odd that this bush kept burning without being consumed. And so when he goes there, the Lord speaks to him. 
And God gives him this massive, this is in Exodus chapter 3, by the way, gives him this massive mission to deliver, uh, to appear before Pharaoh and demand that he release the children of Israel from bondage. Let my people go. This is a big, big deal. And we read in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It's Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. He said, Cast it to the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, reach out, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, that's interesting. He also gave him a couple of other signs to perform. I want you to see this, that God, uh, Moses was already convinced that God was speaking to him because of the burning bush. This was enough. God got his attention with this burning bush, and when he gets to the bush, he hears the voice of God. There's probably something about the very nature of the audible voice of God that uh, made this encounter convincing to Moses. But we still have to be careful. My point is that there was no Bible yet. The first books of the Bible were written by Moses, right? And he hadn't done it yet. No written history. Certainly no law. So how was he supposed to judge the voice? He had nothing. We're encouraged in the New Testament to test these things. Test all things. Moses didn't have that message. He didn't have that Bible. So he hears a voice. By what is he supposed to judge? How did he know it was God? Well, again, God simply made himself known to Moses by this encounter, but he also showed him signs. The audible, the, not just the burning bush, not just the audible voice, but the rod. Uh, right after they told him, stick, stick your hand inside your, uh, your coat there and then pull it out, and he did, and he had leprosy on the hand. He said, now put it back uh, into your bosom, pull it out, and his and hand was clean. And there were a couple of other things. Uh, but he gave him to do those signs. These were signs he was going to be able to repeat in Pharaoh's presence. Now, at the time of Jeroboam, the man of God spoke of King Josiah, who again wouldn't show up for 300 years, but he confirmed the word with a sign. The altar was split. So even though Jeroboam had access to the law, the only way to confirm a prophecy so far in the future was with a sign. Famously, Gideon asked for a sign. What was it? What do we call it? Gideon put out a, a fleece. Yeah, uh, he believed he'd heard from God. He had an encounter with the angel of the Lord, and he says, just so I know, Lord, uh, don't be angry with me, but I'm going to put this fleece out, and if everything around it is wet and the fleece is dry, then I'll know I've heard from you. And then he reversed it the next day, and the next day it was wet and everything else was dry. And people... Uh, we, we are always, uh, as faith people, we're always quick to point out that's not the way we're to operate. We don't operate by fleeces. We don't operate by tests like that. We operate by faith in the word of God. And we're right about that, but this was actually uh, a good move by Gideon. Um, this, uh, we can hear the voice of God, and God does speak to man. He always has spoken to man. And we also, though, have what? We have prophets to speak the word of God to us. But in those cases, we must be humble enough to ask, am I hearing you, Lord? Am I hearing right? 
should I believe what this prophet is saying and how do I know? The Bible says, even when it comes to signs, we've got to be careful because the Bible says there's such things as lying signs and wonders. I believe we're going to see those uh, very much. I think those will be uh, visible and, and taking place uh, during the tribulation. Uh, and there are and always have been false prophets. So in the case of Gideon, he asked for a specific sign to make sure he wasn't running off doing something he didn't understand, wasn't supposed to do, just in case he heard wrong. But one thing we can absolutely believe in is the written word. Now I want to go back to the man of God's prophecy about Josiah. Remember him? We read about him in 2 Kings chapter 22, and I'm going to read kind of a long passage here. So listen, and there's a lot of names in here. I'll try to skip through those, and, and the ones I don't skip through, I might massacre. Uh, but you'll, you'll follow it along, and I think you'll see this more clearly if we actually read the whole passage so we get the right context. In, what did I say, 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. Uh, his mother's name was Jedida, daughter of Adiah, she was from Bozkath. Bozkath, that sounds like a great name for a rock band, doesn't it? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. There were several good kings in the southern, uh, southern kingdom of Judah. Josiah was one of the best. In the 18th year of his reign, so he's 26 years old, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan son of Azalea, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah the priest and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dressed stone to repair the temple, but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. This is a big, big deal. Because he was a good king, one of the best, he set himself to repair, rebuild the temple that had fallen into great disrepair. And he wants to make sure that the people doing the actual work get paid for it. So then in verse 8, we read this. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported it to him. Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then the secretary informed the king. And I can sort of see him saying this. <clears throat> uh, Hilkiah, the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it, read from it in the presence of the king. When the king, verse 11, heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, uh, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us, because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Now it said right off the bat that he was a good king. He didn't turn to, uh, to the right or to the left. 
He had a heart for the Lord. He followed him perfectly to the extent that he knew, he knew how. But then you look at this reaction, not to a voice from heaven and not to a prophetic utterance, not to a sign. His reaction was to the written word of God. What did he do? He tore his root. Oh, no! Here he is doing everything good he knows how to do, getting his country on track the best he knows how. Things should have been going great. And then they, look what we found. It's the book of the law. And he reads it or has it read too and says, we're not doing any of this. This stuff couldn't be more clear. And I didn't know any of this because everybody who went before us that I remember, none of them were doing it. If this is true, we are in trouble now. And they, so he says to Hilkiah and these four other dudes, go inquire of the Lord. And then we read this, 2 Kings chapter 22. We pick it up in verse 14. Hilkiah and these four other guys went to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, the son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. Verse 15. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols, and, uh, idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Now, I don't think I have this in my notes, so let me make this observation while I'm thinking about it. Judgment was going to come to Judah because of their great sin. Their great sin, their national sin, the one sin that was tolerated and celebrated, that, was, that the Bible clearly condemned, was idol worship. Josiah, a good king, responded in such a way that he put off that judgment for at least one generation. Now, the next in line to the throne, guess what he could have done? And every person, they could have continued putting that judgment off another generation, another generation, if they had all reacted to God's word like Josiah did. It wasn't going to happen, and God knew it wasn't going to happen. Judgment was going to come. But so much depends on how we respond to God's word. Josiah had a humble response to the written, to the written word of God. Then came a prophetic, a prophetic utterance concerning it. This is the big application for us. We are commanded in 1 Thessalonians not to despise prophesying, not to treat it with contempt. Prophecy is encouraged in the New Testament believer, in the New Testament church. 
But with so many competing prophetic voices, we must be able to judge prophecy. We must be able to test it. And you are wasting your time trying to sort it out if you are trying to sort it out without a firm grasp of what Scripture says first. I gave a simple and easy-to-spot example of it last week. There was a guy, some of you know who he is, who said very boldly, uh, as a spokesman of God, if you are praying for President Biden, you are sinning. Because all you're supposed to do is pray for the office, not the individual. What does Scripture say about that? It says pray for those in authority. That's the people in the office. I know I'm supposed to pray for the president and the governor and senators, all these lawmakers, all those in authority. So that was an easy one to spot. It's not always that cut and dry, but what God said to Josiah was, your starting point was good. You responded to my revealed word, the law, with humility. You held my word in high regard. Therefore, now I will speak to you specifically concerning you and your times. Then came the prophetic utterance, confirming the word he had already read. I would phrase it this way. If you want to be in a position to hear God through prophecy, and we should. We don't want to despise prophecy. We want to value prophecy. If you want to hear a prophetic word, or for that matter, if you want to be used to prophesy, and we should covet the best gifts. And Paul put that one up pretty high. He said you should desire to prophesy more than you should desire to utter a tongue in the assembly. But if you want to be used to prophesy, if you want to hear accurately prophecy directed toward you, you must approach the written word of God humbly and seriously first. If you want a specific word of God for your life, then you dig into the general word of God, the universal word of God, the written word of God for all mankind. We say, I respect the Bible. I love the Bible, but I want a rhema word. I want a spoken word, and I'm telling you the best definition for rhema is this. It is the written word spoken. That's where the power is. When we talk about walking in the authority of the believer and the power of the tongue, that power rests in our speaking God's word to our circumstances. That is the confession of faith. What does confession mean? To agree with, to say together, to speak in agreement. In this case, to say with God. It is the amen. What does amen mean? So be it. Or even more specifically, let it be as it was said. We don't always need a fresh word from heaven. We need God's written word illuminated to us by the Spirit of God. And that can be done through prophetic words. I love when, when Doug comes up to deliver uh, a word like that, a word of, which I would categorize as prophecy. Half of it sometimes, three quarters of it, is scripture, but it is scripture that is written, spoken with a God-given moment, a God-given gift, authoritatively, and arranged in a way to speak to where we are at this moment today into a specific word of encouragement, which is what prophecy does, right? Now, we are going to get into, coming up here shortly, not today, but in, in future Sundays, we are going to get into what it means to have faith in God and have faith in His Word. But I want you to remember this, because it is a truth that runs through all of Scripture. When the enemy of our souls moves against us, he will always try 
to snatch the word of God away from us because it's the most potent weapon we have. He will move against the word in our lives. He will distract us from the word. He will try to cause us to doubt the word because he doesn't want us to do the word. It's the doing of the word that threatens Satan's kingdom. And we can't do it if we don't believe it. We can't believe it if we don't know it. We can't know it if we don't study it and hear it. So he tries to silence the voices. He tries to deny us access to the word of God. And if we have access to it, he throws a million other things into our lives so that we just don't get around to it. Remember this, in the garden, there were some positive commands, good ones, to Adam and Eve. Go forth, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. There was one big don't, remember? Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you do, you die. And Satan's attack, the serpent, started with what? Has God indeed said? Did God really say that? And they followed it up with this. He won't do that. Okay, he said it, but he won't do it. Satan's attack on us starts with an assumption of our ignorance of God's word. And then, even if we know what the word of God says, his attacks continue with an assault on God's character. He may have said it, but he won't do what he said. Our faith must be rooted in the knowledge that God indeed did say it and that he is utterly faithful when it comes to performing his word. Let me say this again. Ignorance of the word is our greatest danger. If we believe, and I absolutely do believe, that our words have power, that our confession of faith means something, then I have to know what to confess. Confession of faith isn't me going out declaring everything that I want. It's speaking God's word over my circumstances, situations, struggles, everything else. Not just what we're fighting against, but what we're believing for, right? Say amen. You say, I agree. So be it. Now, so Satan, what he really tries to do is uh, question your knowledge of God's word. To foster ignorance of God's word. God didn't really say that, did he? And then you think, well, I don't know. Well, why do you think he said that? Well, I've always been told he said that. Have you, did you hear him say it? Did you read where he said that? Do you know it really doesn't say that? And then, if, you can't, if we like, no, no, the Bible really does say this, what's the next thing he's going to do is cast dispersions on God's character. Oh, yeah, God said all sorts of things. But why would he say this? Does that really make sense to you? Why would, why would a good God say this? Why would a good God require that? He's not going to do this stuff. Don't you know a lot of people who've done worse things than that? Do you, Praise and worship team, come on up here. In fact, we can say this. God said that he would provide a sacrifice for the world to save mankind from sin. God said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there is none righteous, not even one. The only hope to be delivered from hell is to have our debt paid by someone else, and the someone is Jesus Christ, God's Son. Now, did God say that? Or did God say, you're not that bad? Why would I 
a loving God consigned somebody like you to eternal punishment for some minor infraction of my complicated law, right along with people like Hitler and Stalin. Do you really think you're deserving of that kind of punishment? Is that what God says? What did God say? There is none righteous. Not even one. He didn't say some people aren't worse than others. He said there's none righteous. Not even one. He said if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Stand up with me. Do you believe that? Have you acknowledged your need for a Savior? Do you believe that Jesus not only died, but he died for you? Do you believe not only that Jesus died, but that God raised him from the dead? And will you submit to his lordship? If you haven't made that decision, if you haven't come to the place where you realize that it wasn't just the world that needed a Savior. It was every individual in the world that needs a Savior, and that includes you. You need to make your confession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord. He gets to be your boss. But he is the absolute best boss, better than any boss you can imagine. He is 100% committed to your welfare. And the benefits plan is incomparable. If you've not personally made that decision, this is your opportunity. Please make it today. I'm going to pray a simple prayer when I'm done praying. Do we have a song to go out on? Uh, as, as they begin to sing, I would like you to come up here and let me pray with you. God can hear your voice right from where you're at, but if you're making a decision that is going to change the course of your life starting today, we want to celebrate with you. I want you to make that a public decision. I know I'm asking a lot. And I might be speaking to a room full of people who are believers already. I just never want to make that assumption. So I'm going to pray. And let me say this. When I'm done praying with you, we're done singing. Pastor Mike will close out the service as usual. Pastor Mike, if you would uh, be kind enough to pray over the spaghetti lunch. They'll start serving within 15 minutes of dismissal. He's got to have some people to go back there and set some things up. So hang out a little bit. Again, if you want to join us, for, for the spaghetti lunch, feel free to do it. Let the people who signed up get in line first. It's only fair. Uh, but there, there should be plenty for several more if you want to hang out and, and feel free to make a donation even if you don't stay. Now, enough for the commercials, I guess. Back to business. I'm giving you time to think about this opportunity too. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to preserve your word so that we can be kept safe, so that we can pursue you wholeheartedly and with direction. Direction we can look at, read, and refer to and share with others. Thank you for giving us a specific gospel to preach and to live. And thank you, Lord, that that gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for us. Jesus Christ, whom you raised from the dead in victory over sin, victory over death, victory over hell. Thank you for the heaven that awaits us because of that sacrifice. And it's my prayer now that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who has not made a decision to surrender their life to Jesus Christ, to accept that free gift of salvation that you would impress upon the dire urgency of their situation. 
and grant them the wisdom, the humility, and the boldness to seize this opportunity and receive that salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.